Psalm 92, page, 100, page 425. Have you ever watched a stretch limo roll by or peeked into your CEO's corner office or toured a Rockefeller mansion or maybe Versailles in France or looked up at the top floor of a Madison Avenue penthouse suite and asked yourself, I wonder how the other half lives. I wonder what the world looks like from up there. Well, that's sort of analogous to the view that today's scripture passage gives us. Because you see, today's psalm, as, as David pointed out when he read it, is the only psalm subtitled, A Song for the Sabbath Day. A song to be sung, a prayer to be prayed on the Sabbath day. Let me explain the connection that I'm making here. We impoverished Gentiles, who may not have been raised with the Sabbath, may not realize the riches and the luxury that a Jewish family experiences on the Sabbath day. Abraham Heschel, who's a Jewish theologian and philosopher and has written a classic work on the Sabbath, refers to the Sabbath as a palace in time. A palace in time. And, and here's what he means. Picture yourself traveling as life's weary traveler, slogging your way uh, on foot along life's journey. Over rough roads, through inclement weather, suffering cold nights in the open air, uh, or a warm nights being eaten alive by mosquitoes, um, in danger from bandits perhaps, perhaps short on provisions. But every seventh day on your journey, you come across an opulent palace. And you're invited, you're welcomed in to, be, uh, to, to, be, to have rest, to be refreshed. You luxuriate that night in the soft bed with the satin sheets, the sumptuous meals, the festive entertainment that you enjoy. For you Lord of the Rings or Hobbit fans, you, you can think of Rivendell, okay? That safe haven, that beautiful retreat where, where the weary traveling party finds rest and reprieve from their demanding quest. That's the Sabbath, a palace in time. That God has graciously invited his people into to be rested, to be cheered, to be restored before we continue on our journey. Why? Because God is a good king. If you're familiar with where the Sabbath was, or when the Sabbath was first given to the Israelites by Moses, it was right after God had redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt. In, uh, as slaves under the, the, um, the harsh tyranny of Pharaoh, the Israelites no doubt had to toil seven days a week. Week after week, they had no weekend, no day off, no reprieve, just day after day of harsh, unrelenting toil. But God freed his people, and when God redeemed them, he said, I am not that kind of king. I'm a king who cares for you. Among other things, I give you a weekend. Sure, there, there's work to be done, but I want you to have a day off to rest and to celebrate. And I promise, God said, that, that I will take care of you on that day so that you don't need to worry about working. Well, to the Israelites, that sounded almost too good to be true. And in fact, for some of the people, it, it, it was, they felt it was too good to be true. They didn't think they could trust in a good God who would take care of them. 
You might remember God was providing them with manna each day to eat, which they had to go out and they had to collect it each morning. And God said, on Friday, I'll provide more than you need, so go out and collect twice as much as you normally do. There'll be enough for you so that you won't need to go out and work on Saturday. You can have the Sabbath day off. But, but some people, they couldn't believe this was true. They, they wouldn't trust in God's provision, and so out they went on Saturday looking for food, looking for work to do, and there was none. And so we're going to be challenged this morning to think about whether we trust God enough to take care of us so that we can actually take a rest. This morning we continue our series on making room. Last Sunday we looked at making room for solitude. This morning we're looking at making room for rest. As we seek to learn in the rhythm that this semicircle, which traces the pendulum swing, this, uh, this rhythm, this semicircle represents for us a rhythm of work and rest, a rhythm of, of abiding in Christ and bearing fruit for Christ, and as we added last week, a rhythm of solitude and going out to live our calling. Now, this topic hit a nerve last week, didn't it? <laughs> because we live in a culture and we're a people who are, are very poor at taking the rest that we need. And our lives are impoverished as a result. And so for many of us, we, we look up at that, that penthouse suite, that, that palace in time called Sabbath, and we can only wonder how the other half lives. Well, today we're going to look at Psalm 92, and we're going to find out. Uh, because this psalm gives us a view from that palace, a view at life out the window from a place of Sabbath rest. The first thing we notice about the Sabbath in the psalm is the singing. Like at Rivendell, so on the Sabbath, there's often a song in the air. Why? Well, because it's the weekend. Because we're getting a break from the arduous journey. We're, we're being refreshed in the palace. Even more because we're so grateful to the one who's graciously invited us into his palace as his guest. Look at verses 1 to 2. It is good to praise the Lord. And to make music to your name, O Most High. To proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. Those who live one day a week in the palace in time find that we want to sing our praise to God. We want to tell people about God's love and faithfulness. The view from the palace inspires singing. As we read the rest of the psalm, we see what that view is and we begin to understand what all the singing is about. So we move to verses 4 and 5 now. Why is there singing on the Sabbath? First, for you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. Here, as we begin to leave our work behind and enter into a day of rest, the focus shifts from our work to God's work. We stop thinking about all we've got to do, and we start recognizing all that God has already done and continues to do. Sabbath, in particular, remembers two of God's mighty works. The first is creation. The second is redemption. And these are included in the two Sabbath commandments in the two versions of the Ten Commandments that are found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. 
In Exodus 20, God reminds us of his work of creation. God says there, as he commands regarding the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days, excuse me, you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord our God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Creation. In Deuteronomy 5, God gives the same command, but this time he reminds us of his work of redemption. God says, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Creation and redemption, God's two mightiest acts. Both of them show God's awesome power. Both of them express God's generous love. Both of them are, are victories over hostile forces. You, you may know that from the worldview of ancient peoples, creation was, was a battle and a victory over the chaos and the darkness which threatened goodness and life. In the opening lines of scripture, what, what is the earth described as being like? It's described as being dark, as being empty, being formless and void, covered by a watery deep. This is all chaos language. The earth was overwhelmed by forces of, of chaos and uh, destruction. And so it was uninhabitable. It was um, unconducive to life and to flourishing and to goodness. But what did God do? God brought order to the chaos. God brought light to the darkness. God brought life into the emptiness. God created a world that was good. If you look at some of the places in Psalms and Isaiah where, where a creation is depicted, it's depicted as a battle. God, with his mighty power, defeats the, the forces of chaos and destruction, often depicted as a sea monster in the, the raging sea. These are the anti-creation forces, and, and God defeats them and establishes a good creation where life can flourish, flourish and thrive. The Sabbath remembers this uh, that this creation, this creating work, is God's work. It's God who holds back all that would threaten, who brings order out of the chaos, who causes life to flourish. On the Sabbath, we also remember that God is the one who redeems. God is the one who, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, brought his people out of their slavery in Egypt. When, when God's people were enslaved, they were, they were oppressed by a wicked king. Life was brutal. Life was exhausting. But God came and God rescued them. God defeated Pharaoh and brought his people out so that they could rest and thrive and live in peace and in freedom. So Sabbath is a day when we remember God's work both in creating and in redeeming, and we remember not only that God worked in the past, but that God is still working, still creating, still redeeming. We've been working hard all week, but today we can rest and we enter the Sabbath palace and we look out the window and suddenly we realize and we remember that God has been working the whole time. And so now our work begins to take on perspective. We're not the end all and the be all. It's not all on our shoulders. God is at work too. In fact, God is doing the heavy lifting in this world. 
saving the world, making everything work right, wasn't our job, our responsibility in the first place. Phew. It's God's work. It's just that we have been graciously invited to join in and help, much like I might ask my kids to help with a project. I had to learn this lesson when I started as a pastor about 10 years ago. As a brand new pastor, I was quickly getting overwhelmed about how much there was to do. So many responsibilities, so many lives, who, people who needed help, uh, so much spiritual growing that people needed to do. And in order not to get crushed under the weight of all this responsibility, I had to learn that helping the church grow and mature and, and building God's kingdom were not actually my job. They were God's job, the Holy Spirit's job. And God was already doing them. I was just lucky enough to be invited to help, <laughs> to, to pitch in here and there with the gifts God had given me and to help other people pitch in too. But it didn't all depend on me. And, and so when my work was done, I could go home, I could step aside, I could rest. One image that, that helped me to remember this is, is the ordering of the Hebrew day. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible, day begins at sunset? Evening comes first and then morning. That's the way the, the Hebrews mark the days. And so for God's people, what was the first act of every day? They came in from their work. They gathered with their loved ones around a meal and they rested. Of course, they didn't have light bulbs back then, so they spent their evening usually quietly, close to home or in the village, in community, resting, relating. And then the next morning, they started the second half of the day, and now they went out and worked. First rest, then work. First stopping and trusting and letting the world be in God's hands. Then going out to join in in what God has already been doing while we were sleeping and resting. So Sabbath reminds us that, that we don't just work, 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 and then collapse resting from our work because we have to. No, we, we rest, we trust, we abide in God, and then from that place of rest, we go out and work from our rest, joining in the work that God is already doing. We do that each day. We do that each week. And this is a radically different way of looking at life. God, through Moses, was, was teaching his people that this is the way free people live. People who aren't slaves anymore, who don't have to work all the time and depend on themselves to survive. And so it's worth stopping to think, am I living like I'm free? And if not, what false powers, what false gods am I allowing to enslave me? Let's continue. As we settle into to Sabbath rest and our, our vision begins to clear, other things become clear too. Look at verses 6 and 7. Senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand. What don't they understand? That though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish... They will be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. As we rush through life, it, it's tempting to be, to be jealous of those higher on the food chain than we are. 
the ones in the stretch limos and the penthouse suites. And it seems like they must be on easy street. You know, they, they've got plenty of money. They must not need to worry about anything. Now, specifically, the psalmist is, is thinking of those who are unscrupulous in the way they make their money. He calls them the wicked. And the Bible often equates the rich and the wicked. And that's because throughout history, more often than not, the rich have gotten their wealth by oppressing the poor. And so the psalmist sees these evildoers flourishing. And, and I don't know about you, but, but when, when you're working hard to, to, to get ahead and, and it's tough going, it's really easy to be jealous and envious of those fat cats who, who don't play by the rules. Maybe they make up the rules and, and they seem to be getting away with it. But that's not how it looks from the perspective of Sabbath. When you can sit back you can relax, you can get your focus on God and see that God is at work and God is in control, then you realize that, that it's foolish to be jealous of those guys because they're headed for destruction. They're going to fall just as fast as they rose. There's no future for them. Nothing solid under their feet. They're, they're a ticking time bomb ready to, to uh, implode and destroy themselves. Psalmist continues in verse 9. For surely your enemies, Lord, will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. So now the psalmist is, is turning and inviting us to look out another window in the palace where we can see the future. We can see um, the road ahead and its destination. From our place of rest, we begin to see where it's all headed. You can think of the this... Um, the Sabbath's relationship to time this way. When God created the world in the past, it was paradise, it was peace, it was Rivendell all the time. And God had pushed the chaos, the, um, the destruction out. But of course, then humankind turned from God and rebelled against God. And like Pandora's box, we let trouble back in. And the world became in some ways a weary wasteland. Um, and yet presently, though we have to journey through this world, working hard to, to make it, to survive, God in his mercy has given us a palace of, of rest and reprieve and delight every seventh day. And, and the present Sabbath is, is, is therefore both a reminder back to how things were originally meant to be, and, and it's also a foretaste into the future of how God will one day make things again. For the Israelites wandering in the wilderness back in the days of Moses, their weekly Sabbath rest reminded them that they were headed to the promised land. And it was going to be a lush and an abundant land where they would be at rest from their wanderings. In Deuteronomy 3, God calls the promised land the place that God would give his people rest. So as they wander day by day, on that weekly Sabbath, they could look forward to that rest that they were going to enter. And the Bible looks beyond even that rest to a fuller, more complete rest when God's people will enjoy um, what Christ brings when Christ comes again and restores all things and brings us into eternal rest of which the Israelites' promised land was a symbol pointing forward. 
That's the future that we begin to see as we continue this psalm. God's enemies will perish. The evildoers will be scattered. Verse 10 and 11 begins to make this personal. The psalmist gets a personal foretaste of what's to come. These verses suggest that, that this, is, this psalmist is, was a king, maybe King David. Uh, li listen. He says, you have exalted my horn. A horn was a symbol for power. Like that of a wild ox, the strongest of animals. Fine oils have been poured on me. This was done in anointing a king. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. So here the, the psalmist is God's man, God's king, God's representative. And here he shares personally in, in God's victory over God's enemies. They've been defeated. He has been established. Now he can rest. How? Not, not because he's striven in his own strength to overcome, but because God has given him the victory and raised him up. That was true of King David, right? He, sure, David had to fight sometimes. But more importantly, David trusted God. David depended on God. And God lifted him up to the kingship and gave him victory over his enemies. That was also true of King Jesus, the son of David, right? Jesus refused to defend himself, but trusted in God. And God raised him up and exalted him overall as king. Sabbath helps us to remember that, that God's people trust God to fight their battles. The righteous depend on God for all they need. We don't overcome or, or get ahead in our own strength. No, we walk by faith. We, we depend on God who's active on our behalf. And we wait for him to raise us up and to give us rest. Look finally at verses 13 to 15 as we still look to the future from the place of Sabbath. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like the cedars of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay green and fresh. Listen to that language. Flourish, grow, flourish, bear fruit, fresh, green. From the place of Sabbath rest, this palace in time, we can look out the window, we can see the future we can see where our journey is taking us. We see the righteous, those who live by faith, flourishing and growing, staying fresh and green, bearing fruit, even in old age. Not because they are working like dogs to get ahead, but because they're following God. The God who invites us, no, who commands us to stop and to rest. Those who strive in their own strength may outrace us to the top, but like desert grass, they're here today and tomorrow they're gone. We don't have to play that game because God gives us enduringness. God sustains us. God gives us a sure future, a future in which we will flourish. That's Psalm 92. That's what the view looks like as we look at the world from a place of rest. So how about your life? How about my life? Are you living a life of rhythm? A life of work and rest? You know, God has called us as a church to, to help one another grow spiritually, to, to share good news with the world. And that begins with our own lives being good news. 
You can't give away a life that you don't have. If, if we're going to know that the spiritual vitality and the joy and the peace and the inner life which we want others to have, then we've got to enjoy it first before we can give it away, before others see it as attractive. And we'll never have it unless our lives have margin. Time not only to work and to run around, but also time to rest, to, to be refreshed, to spend unhurried time with people we care about. So how's your rhythm? Do you take time um, each day to rest? Do you get enough sleep? Do you take time each day to, to, um, to slow down during the day, at the end of the day, or at the beginning of the day, to, to be with God, to be with loved ones? Or do you just go hard 16 hours a day and then flop into bed? Do you take time each week to rest? Do you take a Sabbath day? How about each year? You know, the Hebrews had not only their daily rest and their weekly rest, but God also gave them several annual Sabbath festivals, which were vacation times, holiday times, to rest and to celebrate, to remember God and what God had done. Do you, do you take time for vacation, for celebration, for retreat, for downtime? But maybe you can't. Maybe you'd like to, but, but you just don't have time for rest. If that's the case, then here's the question. Which Lord are you serving? Is God your king? Or are you serving, are you enslaved to rulers like Pharaoh? Maybe it's the God of career advancement or the, the God of extra cash or the God of my kids deserve every opportunity or the God of I don't want to miss out on any of the excitement. These lords promise us so much, but in the end they enslave us. They rob our spiritual vitality and our freedom. God wants you to be free. Do you trust him? Do I trust him? We have to trust that, that if we put what we care about in God's hands, God will give, it, give back to us what is really best for us. may not be exactly what we put in his hands. So how do we enjoy this gift of, of Sabbath rest? Let's get practical at the end here. Well, Abraham Heschel says something helpful about Sabbath. He says it's, it's a palace in time that God gives us as a gift, but we have to build it. God gives us the raw materials, but we have to construct it for ourselves. So how do you build a Sabbath? Well, for simplicity's sake, we'll think about the weekly Sabbath, and you can extrapolate and uh, think about other kinds of Sabbaths based on that. Well, you start by clearing the ground. For 24 hours, you clear your schedule. You move that shack that you've constructed here. You take that, down that tent that you've put over there. You clear the ground because you're building a palace. Now, I still have a few copies of this book, uh, which has a lot of practical ideas on how to do that. If you'd like your copy, the info is still in your bulletin, too, if you want to look it up online. So as you begin to clear the ground, work, of course, needs to be moved off site to another day as do all the responsibilities which drain you and tax you. Um, cooking, for example, um, is best 
as much as you can, kept to a minimum, something maybe pre-prepared or simple. Um, the conventional wisdom for our day is that, that technology should go too. <laughs> turn off your smartphone, power down your laptop, turn off your TV, at least for most of the day, unplug yourself. Because our need to be plugged in all the time isn't coming from, from healthy places within us. It's not life-giving. It's addictive and it's draining. Then once the ground is clear, build a thick wall around it and guard the gate because everything's going to want to come crowding back in. All right, so now you're ready to furnish and to stock and to decorate your palace. I think I've shared before Eugene Peterson's really good and simple criteria for building a Sabbath. He suggests two things, two ingredients. Play and pray. Now by pray, he, he doesn't mean just pray. He, he means, he's talking about our whole upward relationship with God. He means that we take time during the day to focus on God. Last week we talked about solitude. That's a good idea. Have a retreat alone with God. But there's a lot of other possibilities related to pray. You could, you could read a book. You could read the Bible. You could write a poem. You could get together with, with friends. Talk about God. But also leave time to play. Do something you enjoy doing. Something that will refresh you. Have a picnic with friends or with family. Uh, throw the frisbee in the park. Um, take a walk in the woods. Take your kids fishing. Do something that's fun. Something uh, that's refreshing. And what that is will be different for each one of us. For each one of our families. The point is, though, that Sabbath is a gift. It's, it's a celebration that we have a God who is good to us. A God who um, has set us free. A God who's at work while we rest. A God who we can trust. So, do you ever look up at that penthouse suite and wonder what life looks like from up there? Well, God is inviting us to find out.